I brought a picture with me. Um, and I don't know, can you see this picture? Can you see? You can pass it around if you want. Look at who's in the picture. It's my family. Those of you who can't quite see it yet. Uh, I love them very, very much. And so I'm happy to show them off. Um, but I want you to suppose with me, suppose that somebody is uh, really mean to my kids, okay? You picture that, somebody's being mean, maybe somebody uh, comes over and, and wallops Caleb or knocks him down or something. Do you think that I would like that? No, I would not. Like, why? Why wouldn't I like that? That's, well, that's right, because he's, uh, we're human beings made in the image of God, and we're valuable. But I would especially care, maybe in Caleb's case, because he's my son, and so I love him. We have that relationship. And with God, it is the same. He cares very much how we treat his son. And he rejects those who reject his son. Now, God is patient. He's way more patient than I would be with somebody who hurt my son because he sent his son to die on a cross for people that hated and mistreated his son. But there's a point where people have made their choice and those who reject the Son of God will be rejected by God. And today we're going to learn about some people who didn't like Jesus. The rulers and leaders of the Jewish people who wanted to get rid of Jesus. They wanted him completely out of the picture. Because they saw him as a threat to their power. They saw that they couldn't just do whatever they wanted. They couldn't be on the top of Jesus is Lord. And you know what Jesus did? He told them a story, and we're going to look at that story. A story that showed their sin and showed the consequences for their sin. And as we open up the word of God to Mark uh, chapter, we're beginning in chapter 11, you can turn there, we're brought to the same kind of crossroad, this question, what will we do with Jesus, the Son of God? What will you do with Jesus? We're going to look uh, verse by verse, beginning in Mark chapter 11, Verse 27, and this sets the stage for what Jesus is going to, to say to these leaders in Jerusalem. Mark chapter 11, beginning of verse 27. And they, that's Jesus and his disciples, and they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes 
and the elders came to him. So we have these three groups, these three uh, um, types of people coming to him. And uh, just to back up and remind us, not too many days ago, Jesus had cast out the money changers and the merchants in the temple. And he proclaimed um, judgment on those that did not worship God from the heart, but just made a show, an outward show of things. And so he had done this. And he's been coming daily to preach in the temple from that point on. And now some priests who made their living off of the temple. Some scribes, they were the lawyer type. Those that were experts in the law. And the elders, these were the highly respected citizens chosen from among their people to rule. They were members of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council. So they made the decisions as far as Jewish law was concerned. They weren't in charge of everything because there was the Roman government. But as far as Jewish law was concerned, this was, this was it. These were the men. And they did not appreciate what Jesus was doing. And so they said to him, verse 28, follow with me. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do that? Well, I'll tell you what, it wasn't them that gave him that authority, right? And so they are questioning Jesus' credentials because they saw Jesus' actions in that temple as a threat to their authority, to their power. They want him to fall in line under them or they don't want him at all. But they kind of begin with their questions. And this is how Jesus responds in verse 29. Jesus said to them, I ask you one question. To answer with a question was common for teachers of the law when you're having a debate. And so this wasn't uncommon. But this is the question Jesus asked. He says, answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism, verse 30, of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. So you have two options Jesus gives. He says, what, what about John's baptism? John who proclaimed that the way of the Lord and who baptized people in the wilderness. Was it from heaven or from man? This was a very good question to ask because it reveals the heart of those men. They cannot answer it honestly without making fools of themselves. So they discuss it. Let's hear how they answer verse 31. They discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, 
He will say, why then did you not believe in him? So they can't say he's from heaven because they don't believe it. And they never believed it in the first place. Verse 32. But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So they couldn't answer. They wouldn't say what they honestly thought because they feared the people. They knew that the people understood something about John. They might not have all followed him zealously, but they saw he was a prophet. They saw that what he spoke was the words of God on behalf of God. See, these men, they didn't believe John and they don't believe Jesus either. And so Jesus doesn't answer them. This is a case where he doesn't answer these, the fool according to their folly. He knows they don't want to listen. All they want is ammunition to charge him with a crime. So he's not going to answer them directly. But he will tell them the consequences for rejecting him. He's going to tell them about his father. In a, in a parable. A story. A story with a point. Chapter 12, verse 1. I'm going to read the whole story for us. That Jesus spoke, and it's verses 1 through 9 of Mark chapter 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a pit for the wine press, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, Well, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Pause there. Jesus will go on to interpret this parable. Here's a story about something these men would understand. They could relate. You see, they were the wealthy landowners who leased out land. And the farmers that rent the land in Jesus' story 
are every landowner's worst nightmare. Okay? These farmers wanted to keep all the profit and even the land for themselves, and they're so determined to take what doesn't belong to them that they kill the owner's servants and even the owner's son. It's a pretty gripping story, especially if you can relate to this, this guy, which is something that these men could. As, as I said, they were the wealthy men who owned land. But Jesus has a point to his story. And it's not so that these men would just uh, have a pity party for themselves. And <laughs> he describes a man who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it. This is verse um, 1 dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. He's using the same words that God used in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. In Isaiah 5, God said, Let me sing for my beloved a love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. There's a lot of common words there. Jesus had this in mind as he as he was telling this, this story in verse 5 of Isaiah chapter 5, God said, Now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. And Jesus asks in Mark 12, 9, What will the owner of the vineyard do? In Isaiah 5, God said that the vineyard would be destroyed. And in Mark 12, Jesus says he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. In both cases, there is a vineyard that belongs to God, the people of God. And there's judgment. But there is one key difference. Isaiah 5 is spoken to the entire nation but Jesus was specifically pointing out the sin of the leaders, those who were to lead the people of God. And at first, as Jesus tells the story, they don't get it. Maybe they were wanting to find out how, who these horrible tenants were so they could get rid of them. But verse 12 tells us they perceived that he had told this parable about them. They got the point by the end of it. Maybe the scribes remembered or the priests remembered uh, Isaiah. Maybe in their 
heart of hearts, they realized who they were. They got the point. They knew that Jesus was condemning them for rejecting him. They knew he was exposing the pride that drove them to rule God's vineyard. To have it all to themselves. In the past, their forefathers, the leaders of God's people, had mistreated and killed God's servants, the prophets. But now that the Son of God had appeared, the Jewish uh, leaders were about to do the very same thing. They were about to reject not merely the servant of God, but the Lord himself. Jesus knew their hearts. We know the rest of the story. We know that they did go on to kill him. It hasn't happened yet, but he knew the plans of their heart. He knew that they did not love him. They did not love the Lord, their God. He knew something else. He also knew the plan of God. He knew the purpose of God in his coming as the beloved son to that vineyard. He quotes a psalm at the end of his parable. Psalm 118 Verses 22 and 23. This is in Mark chapter 12, verse 10. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Verse 11. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The gospel, the good news is that God sent his beloved son to be the rejected stone who would be the beginning of a new building, a new temple made up of people, living stones. The unjust murder of the pure and righteous Son of God was not the end. It was the beginning of hope. The Jewish leaders did reject Jesus. And they had him killed on a Roman cross, but this was a part of the perfect plan of God. So that God's blessing, yes, it was taken from them, just as Jesus said the owner would do. But it would be given to others. It would be given to many. Just like Jesus said. And so the Apostle Peter comments in 1 Peter 2, verses eight and, uh, 6 to 8, he talks about that, that scripture, Psalm 118, and, and he says this in 1 Peter 2, verse 6. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of 
offense. Now Peter, if we look at the the language that he uses, he quotes actually from, from several passages in the Old Testament. Not just, this isn't a theme just of one verse in the Bible in Psalm 118. It's a theme in in Isaiah in chapter 8 and in Isaiah chapter 28. The stone would come. Jesus Christ. The eternal God in the flesh. And He came. And He was rejected. As Peter tells us, there are only two choices. When it comes to this stone, the man, Christ Jesus, the Son of God. One is to reject him, to face the Father's wrath, to to trip over him as, as the wording, the stone of stumbling. The other is to receive him and be welcomed into the family of God. I want you to think about something with me for a moment. This is important. The gospel has not been shared if Jesus is not proclaimed and the choices and their consequences are not made clear. If we haven't proclaimed Jesus, who He is and what He's done, and we haven't let people know what the choice is. Reject Him or receive Him. And if we haven't bothered to tell anybody what the consequences, what the blessings of receiving Christ are, we haven't bothered to share the Gospel. This is the Gospel. God so loved the world that he sent his son. That's what this parable is about. The patience and love of God to send his son so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. John 3.16 How will you respond? Will you reject him outright? The scripture testifies that we are by nature children of wrath, enemies of God, who refuse to accept that Jesus is Lord. We'd rather be our own boss. And many go on hating God until their dying breath, refusing to believe in His Son. God rejects those who reject His Son. John records for us in John chapter 3, verse 18, that those who do that are condemned already. Those who do not believe stand already before God condemned. Those are the perishing. The ones who believe are the ones who have everlasting life. What about you? 
Have you received Jesus? Do you confess him as your Lord and Savior? And praise God. But I, I am compelled to remind us that we cannot merely receive Jesus as we want him to be. We cannot merely receive Jesus as we want him to be. To reject God's revelation of himself in favor of our own idea of God is the very definition of idolatry. To, to make a false representation of God. To pick and choose what we want Jesus to be is, is really to reject Christ in favor of our, our idea, the way we want to view him. It'd be like saying, you love my son Caleb, but if your version of Caleb is, uh, he's a little girl who wears a pretty dress and likes Barbies, you clearly do not know my son or love him. You love your own delusional idea of him. Because that's not my son. And I'm not going to look at you and go, you love my son, come on. I love you too. You're, you're a part of my family. That's not how it works. Because you don't even have a clue who my son is. That's the way that it is when we, we put a, a false idea of God. Our own view of God has to be how God reveals himself. How Christ is revealed in the scriptures. To receive him as he reveals himself. As the one who is true God. and True man. Sent by the father. God incarnate. That word incarnate. We get the word incarnation. We talk about that a lot at Christmas time. Means that God became a man. In Christ Jesus. While remaining fully God. Colossians 2.9 tells us that in him. The fullness of deity dwells bodily. God in the flesh. You see another Jesus is no Jesus at all. It's just a figment of a person's imagination. Well, the Jewish leaders didn't want the Jesus that they saw before them. They might have been okay with a Messiah on their own terms, a Messiah under their own thumb, but they wanted to be Lord of the vineyard. And they paid the price for their foolish pride verse 12 says they were seeking to arrest him but feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against them so they left him and went away they took the wrong road and we'll see in the coming weeks where that road took them but they're on that road and they refuse to believe what about you? 
Are you willing to receive the one rejected by so many? To receive Christ is to invite rejection from the world. Okay? Friends and neighbors and family may look down on you. Might even set out to hurt you. But to receive Christ is the road of life. And the promise of God, spoken by the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter 2, verse 6, is that whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Think about that. The hope that there is in those who believe in the Son of God. So today is the day of salvation. It's the day of rejoicing. The psalmist who wrote Psalm 118 goes on to say, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. How? Why? Because of Jesus Christ. When we believe in Him, He is a firm foundation. He is that cornerstone that holds all of the other stones in place, in line. Our hope is in Him. There is that choice. That choice to be made. To reject Him and be rejected by God or to receive Him and to be received by God. And that is the Gospel. The good news that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen.